Hello, thanks for joining me for another episode of 177 Nations of Tasmania podcast. Now, this episode is the first remote interview I've done, as my guest, Nubar, lives on the somewhat remote King Island, which is northeast of the mainland of Tasmania. Nubar is of Armenian extraction, a people with a long and ancient history originating in the Caucasus region, where the modern state of Armenia now lies. Armenians are also a people with a long history of emigration and dispersal, as Armenian communities have survived and thrived across the Middle East, Asia and Africa, and more recently in the Americas and, of course, Australia. There are claimed to be some 50,000 Australians of Armenian heritage from 43 different countries, and Nubar's family migrated from Egypt back in the 1960s. In this episode, you'll hear a bit about the history of Nubar's family and how they came to be in Egypt. And the family history speaks also to the wider context and the history of the Armenian people. And you'll also hear about, in addition, Nubar himself has had a fascinating life of which I can really only provide an extended snapshot in this podcast. From drama teacher, turned filmmaker, turned lecturer, and turned blueberry farmer, Nubar has plenty of stories to tell, as you will hear. My name is Nubar Gazarian, that's an Armenian name, and I live on King Island in Bass Strait in Tasmania. I've been living here for the last 12 years. Before that, I was living in Melbourne. My wife was born on King Island, so we used to come and visit here quite often. And then finally we decided to move over. It was like a sea change, tree change kind of thing. So what I do on the island, initially I was the, the place that we bought finally was, um, has an orchard on it. You know, It wasn't very well looked after, but there was one there. And I tried to improve it as much as I could. You know, there was apple trees and a few cherry trees that weren't really very good. They were sort of on the way out. There was plum tree, nectarine tree, a number of other little berries and stuff like that. And there was a blueberry patch. And I thought that I could do something with that. Um, made it into an organic thing. And it had netting on it already. And then we got now two patches. And I've been growing blueberries the last sort of the last couple of years, I haven't really, I've sort of slowed down on that. But for about nine years, I suppose, I was doing it quite a lot. And it was great. It, you know, I'd grow the blueberries. And then around end of December, just before Christmas, the blueberries would start to come out. And I'd have enough to sell. Maybe you could explain what was the process of coming to King Island? Yeah, yeah, the process. Oh, look, it's it's just it just flowed naturally, really. It was because, as I said, you know, my wife was born on King Island. Nowadays, no one gets born on King Island. Actually, they all have to go to Tasmanian mainland to hospital there to get the birth happening, you know, right. but in, in those days, in Anne's day, she was actually born on the island and uh, she was here till she was about 19 and then she decided to to leave and come to Melbourne and 
spread her wings a little bit. Oh, we met. <laughs> That's a funny story. I was at the Melbourne State College. I was going to Teachers College then, and I had a good friend, Annette, and she's a lovely woman. So I was good friends with her, and she had a birthday party at the Botanical Gardens, and <laughs> she invited me over, and Anne was there because Anne was a friend of hers, right? And they were living in a sort of a flats where it was a big sort of mansion type thing where they're broken up into different flats and Anne was right next to her as neighbour. And so they got on with each other and and so she'd invited Anne and so that's when I met Anne, right? And, you know, we started talking and it was just a sort of a natural communication thing going on. interesting because at the moment I've got a series I'm doing of uh, of uh, small sketches, drawings, pastel, mostly oil pastels and stuff like that, uh, and I call it My Cairo. And it's my childhood, basically. I was born in Egypt, in Cairo, in a suburb called Heliopolis, City of the Sun, Heliopolis. Yeah. It's just a normal suburb of Cairo, about 10 kilometers out from the center of the city. And what I remember about, and it's very interesting when you start to think about how am I going to, what are the visual things that come to me? Often smells mm -hmm. and, and, and then it just sort of opened up, you know, suddenly I could see everything. It, it's like a dream, I suppose, when I think about it now. That period, from the time I was born to about 12, when we decided to come to Australia, right? And that period is a dream. Mm -hmm. But it, it's a dream that's mixed with uh, sort of a, how can I say it? It's, it's almost like my family were a little bit separated from the Arabs, here we are living in Egypt, <laughs> and they hardly spoke any Arabic. I went to a school that was called St. George's College. The first language was English, and Arabic was like down there somewhere. It was unnatural. I felt as if later I realized it, that I was living in an unnatural world. It wasn't real. It wasn't. It was real to me, but it actually, it it was such a construct. It's a uh, a colonial sort of post-colonial construct. To get a bit of context about your fam, a bit more context about your family. What about me is doing in Egypt? The diaspora, yes, yes, you're talking about the diaspora. Yes, yeah. Um, so it's not going into a time machine here. <laughs> My grandfather was probably the only person that I could get something out of, you know, because, all right, I'll give you the, the basics of it. My grandfather from my mother's side, Dede Adom, Emir Jihan, 
Emir Jihan actually is very important because Emir Jihan was the emirs of Persia, the emirs second in command, if you know what I mean, okay. like the, the Emir Jihan. He came originally, his family came from Persia, from Iran, and they were very well off. They were like, had immediate connections with the Emir and all this sort of stuff. That's one generation away from my grandfather. So we're talking about great grandfather or great great grandfather, right? Okay. And he was born in the Bosporus region of Turkey, okay. right? And uh, he was about 20 years old when his father said, they lived in a rural sort of setting. The father was a timber merchant, but he also grew stuff, you know, grapevines and all sorts of other things, you know, grapes and whatever. From what Dede told me, it was like a idyllic life, you know, like there was this river running through there and he'd get a watermelon and take it to the creek and put it in the creek and the creek was so cold that it would split the watermelon open. Okay. And then he'd eat the watermelon, you know, like all this sort of very sensual, sensual stuff. And then the father said, listen, son, you've got to go, get out of here. Go. Because things aren't going to be that good. And then they said, what about you? What are you going to know? I can't, I've, I've got to stay here. Here, have some money, go. Because he knew, his father knew that already there had been massacres, small scale massacres, but he knew something was going to hit the fan. And so Dede left, came to Egypt, he was very intelligent, but not educated in the, you know, he'd gone to school up to about not even high school, right? But he was a very avid reader and very interested in people and, uh, and brain, like you wouldn't believe, just absorbed everything. And he set up a cafeteria in, with, with a friend in, uh, in Cairo and that's how he made his living. And then he met Nene and, you know, they got married, blah, blah, blah. But, but he was unbelievable with languages. Mm. He knew Arabic. He learned Arabic because he wasn't in, in Turkey. They weren't speaking Arabic in Turkey, so he knew Turkish. He could speak Arabic fluently. He could do Turkish fluently. Armenian, of course, fluently and writing as well. English, perfect. French, perfect. And he knew smat smatterings of Greek, Italian. Anyway, so Dede ended up in Egypt, and then there was a massacre. It's huge. Uh, more than one million Armenians. Uh, uh, the genocide in 1915. The genocide, yeah, yeah. This was about the time, it's really funny because it's about, not funny, funny. Uh, it's about the time when the Australians were sacrificing their young <laughs> soldiers <laughs> in Gallipoli for the, the queen or the king or whatever, you know. 
Yeah. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. They suffered. While they were suffering, the Armenian population, they weren't soldiers, not like the Australians, but they were civilians, just normal people being pulled out of their villages and their, and put on this long march. And before that, a whole heap of intellectuals, people who were, uh, you know, lecturers and judges and lawyers and whatever else, artists, uh, were rounded up and shot. And then this long march where most of them got killed, raped, horrible stories... Well, yes, eventually they ended up in the desert just in Syria, northern Syria, right? They were being pushed out, basically. They were being driven out, supposedly, in the process. Of course, they were being killed and everything else. You know what? The Syrian Arabs, mm -hmm, Arabs were fantastic. They took on the orphans, all those people that had suffered under the Ottomans and took them into their families, they eventually, some of them became uh, Muslim, you know, but they survived, you know, and some of them didn't, you know. So there's an Armenian community in, in Syria as well and everything else, you know. like. Yeah. But basically that is the genocide story. Yeah. I personally, I don't like to make a song and dance about it as such, I think it's important. There's April the 24th is when we we remember the genocide. The reason I don't like to specifically is because I'm fed up of this thing of, uh, you know, for it's a bit like the what the Jewish thing is. You know, for a thousand years already we've suffered, you know, ah, genocide, genocide. Mm. No, think about now. All right, you've had this experience. Has it helped you become a better human being? That's the most important thing. There's a quite a big Armenian community in Lebanon. And, you know, one of the interesting things about being an Armenian in a Middle Eastern country is that you are sort of, you can be a little bit more neutral or a go-between you don't want people to be anti each other. You you want people to, you know, live in harmony. So in that respect, the Armenians have always had a, a sort of a calming influence on the sects and the, you know, this you know, constant battles. It was very interesting because my my father's cousin, first cousin, Auntie Sophie, and Uncle Sarkis lived in Palestine just okay. when, just when all the business happened. This when the declaration that time? You know about the Balfour thing, and you know what that declaration said. It said, yes, you're allowed to come to Palestine as long as you treat the people with justice and respect, etc. That was part of the document. But they didn't do that, did they? Mm. They came and they pushed out people from their villages and all sorts of horrible things. And my aunt was witness to that. And okay. she told me about it because she was working for the embassy or whatever it is, the British embassy in Palestine. 
And she had was actually first-hand experience of what was going on. And they were, the Armenians were desperately trying to protect the Palestinians from the Israelis, trying to get them away as much as possible, take them to Jordan, whatever was required. They wanted to help them. You know, because there was an Armenian quarter in Jerusalem for fuck's sake. Yeah, we've been there, there for you know whatever. For probably since, since Roman times or long. Yeah, time. yeah, a long time, a long time. You know, it, 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 these are old cultures, not just the Armenians. Everyone in that region, fucking hell, man, they go back millennia. This is the trouble. Everybody just forgets about everything. It's as if it's only now that matters. No, it isn't only now that matters. History, the reason you you read history is because you want to learn from that. In a sense, my family never experienced the kind of the major dramas, except for Auntie Sophie, I suppose, yes, because uh, she had to then go to, they escaped, they went to, they didn't want to be around after that because it was like, why do we want to live with these fuckers that have just destroyed everything? Mm. Uh, and they went to Jordan, to Oman, and Auntie, Uncle Sarkis was a very good plumber, and he became the plumber for the king of Jordan. <laughs> it's a major thing, right? It's quite a title. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a plumber for the king of Jordan. Anyway, his sons finally migrated to Australia, to, and they lived in Sydney, and I used to visit them when I was over here. You know, we would go to Vic, and you know, it was it was lovely just to have a second cousin. You know, yeah, and and Johnny, Johnny, the older one, and Vic. But yeah, yeah, you look. It's when you when you know about it firsthand, like that. When somebody's telling you something. You know, they're doing it because they want you to know. That's all. Uh, it's different from reading a book, you know, about it yeah. and whatever, yeah, you know. Yeah. Your grandfather came, he was the one, the original one that came to Egypt. Yes, yes. He was the one who came to Egypt. Now, my grandmother's side from my mother's side had, was already there. Now, I don't know the full story there. I'm not quite sure exactly how that happened, but they, they were there. And she was born in Egypt. And also, my mother was born in Egypt. So yeah. I'm second-generation Egyptian. And uh, my dad was born in Egypt, right? His father came from Armenia proper. Okay. And they, they came from Armenia and settled. And I think it was around the time or before the Soviet business happened, you know, like it okay. was all that because, you know, Armenia, as you know, the history of Armenia became part of the Soviet Union. It was independent for a very short period of time, I think 1925, yeah. 1925 to 1928. But we were under a lot of pressure from the Turks and really, yes. in the end, we needed to be in one or other camp, superpowers. And so the Soviet became part of the Soviet Union 
actually decided to become part of the Soviet Union. It wasn't like an invasion or anything, but there were a lot of Armenians that felt that there was the wrong decision, and they left Armenia and went to Lebanon. A lot of them went to Lebanon. And so there were sort of two camps of Armenians. The Armenians that were the, they're called the Tashnaks, and they're like the nationalists, you know. They don't yeah. want to be ruled by the Soviet Union. But in reality, we had to, uh, because if we didn't, we would have been right? The Turks would have just flattened us, right? Yeah. So once the Soviets were there, that was it. Fuck off Turkey, right? <laughs> and, uh, and but you pay the price of being part of a an empire, basically. Yeah. And uh, the beauty of it was, though, that education was free, mm -hmm. and Armenians love education. It's, like, so important. We don't have big families. Often it's two kids or, you know, maybe in, in the, some of the country villages, yes. But in general, uh, small families, but highly motivated to educate your children. And so a lot of Armenians, it became, Armenia became the sort of like the computer center for the Soviet Union, you know, in terms of skills and all sorts of things like that. You've got to remember that when my family came from Egypt to Australia, they were coming not because they were being hounded by the Egyptians. Let's get it right here. The Egyptians were just getting out of their bloody colonial shit that they had to go through. And they were nationalizing their industries. They were nationalizing their schools. And so they wanted the schools no longer to just be teaching subjects in English or French or whatever. They wanted them to be taught in Arabic. Why not? It's a fucking Arab country. <laughs> and and uh, so, but my parents went, woo, you know, like, of course, because I haven't been given a proper education in Arabic. Then they desperately tried to get a tutor in, you know, when I was about 11 or something. And he was terrible. He was a horrible teacher. And, <laughs> and uh, he was trying to teach me Arabic. And I, I, uh, He'd sort of pick on my ear and pull on it and all this sort of stuff, and I'd, I'd hated him, you know. So, uh, but I can understand where the Egyptians were coming from, you know. Mm -hmm. They're a good people. They're very social people, great sense of humour. The reason we came was because my parents wanted us to have a better opportunity because they thought in university, if we get to university level, they're going to... Uh, the Egyptians are going to give chances for their people, the Arabs, to take those positions rather than someone that was from an ethnic background, like Armenian, Greek, Italian, whatever. And they also harbored a little bit of jealousy and resentment that when the colonials were here, when the English were here or the French were here, it was those people the Armenians and the Greeks and the Italians and the Jews and whatever that were taking advantage of that and were given better opportunities yeah. than the Arabs, you know? And I can understand that. That's exactly what happened. And living in Egypt as um, Armenians, did you, did you feel... Did, did your family, uh, or did you have sense that mm. you you were Egyptian, that you belonged there, or that was that you were just expatriates? 
Interesting question. I, you know, as a young boy, I don't know whether I even understood that, you know. Mm -hmm. But what I did understand is that I wasn't quite connecting with as much as I could have. I knew that. Whether we regarded ourselves as Egyptian, I think we did. I think my family did actually think of themselves as Egyptian. It was just that they didn't understand how if you're going to call yourself Egyptians, how you should behave. There are things that they could have done to make it better mm -hmm. for the Egyptians, for the Arab Egyptians, so that the Arab Egyptians then understood, oh, okay, there might be Armenian Egyptians, but Jesus, you know, they're not bad. <laughs> they're actually have done good stuff for us, you know. And so we had that opportunity and I didn't think we took we did enough. <laughs> Arabic is a beautiful language, absolutely beautiful. But the trouble is, at the time, I wasn't really speaking Arabic, not very much. And um other than Shafia, our our maid, because we were a sort of middle class and we had a mm -hmm. servant you know most middle class people had servants and she was lovely actually she looked after me basically you know and so i learned arabic from her a, a little bit you know so at home you spoke mainly armenian mainly armenian and english my my parents were very anglo you know and and french if they didn't want us if they didn't want the kids, because I've got my brother, who's three years younger than me, Rafi, and if if there was any stage where they didn't want the kids to hear what they were talking about, uh, they didn't want us to understand, they'd speak in French. Within a very short period of time, we picked it up, because you know what kids are like. They absorb uh, languages, and there was lots of languages around. And uh, we absorbed languages like um, for a for a short period of time for two years. I went to a, uh, a French school. My Godfather, that school was the toughest toughest school I had ever gone to. I was only nine years old, <laughs> not quite nine years old for two years. Homework like you wouldn't believe. I didn't have homework like that ever after that. In high right. school here? No way. They were unbelievable. Within two years, I was fluent French to the point where when I came to Australia, I went, my first school was Malvern Central in Malvern. And it was year, year six. And they had a French teacher, which, you know, and he was, you know, Je suis, tu es, il est, uh, la plume de ma tante est, you know, all this sort of crappy stuff that you learn when you were in sort of <laughs> in a prep or something like that. And so I started to speak to him in French, you know, just like a normal conversation. He just flipped out. He's, you know, he could actually have a conversation in French with me. So he loved it. And, uh, you know, he was a lovely teacher, Mr. Steele. <laughs> anyway, going back to Egypt, it was all about family. And so my family, my mother had two sisters, and so they visited each other. 
you know, it was all of that sort of family stuff. Um, and um, uh, my father had a sister as well, Auntie Anoush, uh, living close by. They were the only ones that had television. It was a big thing. Anyway, it was, <laughs> it was very funny, you know, this tiny little television set, black and white. You know, everyone's crowded around. Ooh, my uncle's out there with the aerial trying to get it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, it was a time where it was all about families, you know, getting together and doing things. I ended up making a film called Tadron, T-A-D-R-O-N, which got screened on SBS. Uh, it was only a half hour, and uh, it was about the amateur theatre group in Melbourne, the Armenian amateur theatre group in Melbourne, <laughs> and my cousin, Coco, who was sort of involved with it as the director, <laughs> and a number of other people were involved. And I remember the last year of my parents desperately trying to work out where are we going to go, how are we going to do this? Because part of the family ended up in Canada. My father's side of the family ended up in Canada. And my mother's side of the family ended up in Australia. So it was a decision, which way are we going to go? Are we going to end up in Montreal or are we going to end up in Melbourne or Sydney? And we ended up in Melbourne, okay? So Dad missed out on his sister and uh, cousins and all that kind of stuff. So I've visited them since, you know, to Montreal. So, yeah, that's the natural thing that happens to families when they have to yeah. migrate. What's tipped them to Australia rather than Canada? <laughs> yeah, as kids, we used to listen to, uh, you know, the adults talking about it and what they're going to do, blah, blah, blah. And then we'd go off and pretend we were deciding, you know. Uh, I think I think I'd like to go to, you know, Canada because there's snow. I like snow, you know, and all this. Sort of stuff. Anyway, the, the I think what tipped them over was um, the three sisters wanted to go to Australia. And mum was very close to her sisters. Now she's the only one that survived, you know. The other sisters have passed away. Mum is 95, is going to be 96 oh. this year. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. She's in a nursing home now in Melbourne. Yeah, so, you know, these stories of families and what happens to them, it's, you know, it's sad because it's sad in the sense that you want, you're not necessarily going to see them every day or anything, but it's yeah. nice to know that they're reasonably close, that you can yeah. get to them, you know, but it's not like that anymore. The world is massive. There's so many places that people go to and, and what happens. And in the end, I suppose that affected me in the way I was thinking about family because I was thinking, you know what, it's not – the family that you're born into necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's the family that you make for yourself. Yeah. Because as an immigrant, that becomes very clear to you, you know, that yeah. it's really the, the connections that you have with the people, the friends and the strength of that relationship, you know, the, the ways you build on that relationship. <laughs>
So we came to Melbourne, and I, I remember that trip on the ship coming to that's yeah. very clear in my head and um it was beautiful and it was you know just being able to run around and around that ship it was called the roma it was part of an italian flotta lauro it was called mm -hmm. yeah 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 so it was it was fun it was like and then we arrived in melbourne and i remember the ship docking just out of port melbourne right and we'd see all the orange lights of the city, of the the city, you know, the street lights and stuff. And we're thinking, wow, must be quite a metropolis. <laughs> 1962, right? And my uncle and my aunt, I mean, had were already here, so they came to pick us up, and we went to Windsor. We stayed with them just for a, a month, not even less. And then we moved to a flat in in Pram. And my God, we couldn't believe it. Like uh, my parents took a while for them to get used to it. Just everything shuts down at six o'clock and all there is, it's a, it's a, the shops are just, there's no shops. There's no delicatessens. It's nothing, I think there was one delicatessen, <laughs> a Jewish, you know, delicatessen. Mum used to go and shop there. I mean, ridiculous because everything was more expensive. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, they they just—it was totally different. It was just nothing, you know. It was very early days in the cosmopolitification, if you like, of yeah. Melbourne. Within a within ten years, it was a totally different story, you know. I was about to ask you about what what how your parents. Um adapted then to life in Australia and whether they in, in, engaged in uh, with Australian culture? No, no, they didn't. Mm -hmm. No, they didn't. It, it, suburbia, that's all it was, just suburbia. Suburban culture, which is, you know, get your house, look after yourself, you know, have a little sort of small community where they're interacting and, the indigenous people, forget it. I don't think there's too many Armenians that know much about what the indigenous people are doing. I remember taking olives to school and the kids didn't never seen an olive before, black yeah. olives. I used to tell them they were beetles, you know, <laughs> cooked beetles, special. Yeah, yeah, all that sort of stuff, you know. So at school, were, were there um, other migrant kids there or, or was it sort of more than anything? No. If I had gone to Paran High School, yes, there would have been. There would have been Italians and Greeks and stuff like that. But no, mum and dad decided, no, 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 we've got to go to a really good school. What good school? It was no different to anything else. It was Malden Central. I had to take the tram down High Street all the way. You know, like it took me a bloody more than half an hour to get there. And we were the only foreigners, Rafi and me. You know, it was, it was a, you know, what do they call it? Waspish. A waspish sub suburb. Malden. We're talking about Malden. It was sort of all English and, you know, whatever. And not that I mind. It's just there wasn't any... There wasn't enough variety. And I was bullied. Whoa. Yeah, I was bullied because I was really good at 
at uh, at school. I just breezed through everything, you know. And uh, you know, they picked on me. And there was one guy that really picked on me. And eventually, there was a huge battle. The end of that first year, I was much smaller than he was. He was constantly picking on me. And I ended up attacking him. And But it wasn't a normal fight like, oh, put up your cuffs. I just literally destroyed him. <laughs> I, because I, I fought... I fought for survival. I, I remember. I was fighting for survival. It wasn't a fight like a normal fight. He just put up your dukes. Blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. I was fighting to kill him. I wanted to kill that guy. And I tore into him, gouged into his eyes. I bit into him. It was like I wanted vengeance, complete mm -hmm. amount of vengeance. And I got it. But then I got told off, of course. But he didn't get told off for the fact that he'd been picking on me all year. But I didn't mind that. After that, nobody touched me. Nobody. <laughs> I've done lots of other things, obviously. You go through different phases in your life. I'm 73 years old now, right? And I've, I've, I've done a lot of things, you know. And when, uh, when I would say, you know, I've gone to the usual stuff, you know, go to uni, mess around, do a whole heap of stuff. I did a teacher's course, you know, in, in Melbourne, ended up being a drama and film teacher. And that was the only way I could actually do the things I wanted to do, which was, it was very hard to get at that stage. It was very hard to get into the Australian film and television school. And the mm -hmm. only other place that I could do it was at the Melbourne State College in Melbourne. They had a really good film course. And I had been doing sciences because I started off with food technology, but I love foods. I've always been a good cook and food person but i thought food technology was going to be interesting but all it was was work for the man you know work for the okay. industry and i wasn't interested in that and so i left that after two three years almost one year working in a laboratory <laughs> which was fun <laughs> in a way it was fun uh, and then um, i ended up going to melbourne state college and doing the you know the teacher's course but that's when I started, really. Before that, I was messing around with a Super 8 film. In fact, I got in on the strength of a film that I'd put together as a diary film. You know, in those days, no digital. <laughs> it's all hand stuff, you know, joining the little bits of film together and, you know, like, and then putting a little music with it, which was on a cassette, you know. And, uh, you know, I ended up with a, not about a 30-minute reel with music and impress them with the with what I was doing. And on the strength of that, I got in because I hadn't done any arts or anything like that, you know. Okay. So I ended up doing drama and film at the age of, what was I? By that stage, I was about 23 or something like that. So I was an older student compared to the others who were just coming, most of them coming straight out of school. So they were about 19 so I was four years older. 
I was a senior citizen already, <laughs> you know, and here I am wandering around in my leotards doing drama, <laughs> all this sort of stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, be a tree and, you know, all this sort of shit. But, you know, <laughs> it was fun and it was great actually making friends with younger people and people that I had a, more of a connection with than I'd had in the, when I was doing the sciences at RMIT, you know, the food technology. And then uh, I met some very good friends and, uh, you know, it was fun. And, and then I got into the film thing more and more. Uh, you know, they had a 16 mil camera there and I, I sort of I was the only one that was using it because nobody seemed to be interested. And I thought, what the hell? You've got a beautiful 16 NPR eclair and nobody's using it. And I'm thinking, I'm going to use that. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I got a bit of 16 mil film cheaply, you know, looked around. And uh, so I started to make films. And, yeah, that's how it all started. And then I ended up being a teacher. I did that for a couple of years, uh, Sunshine West High School, tough little school. Yeah. But it was interesting because at that stage, schools didn't know anything about drama. What drama teacher? Who's that? You know, what's that? You know. So I did sort of, I could make up my own curriculum because there was no curriculum. Oh, right. And that was the beauty of it, you know. And um, so I did all sorts of, I did special English with a whole group of migrant kids, you know, from Cyprus and Turkey and, and a lot of places. And, you know, they had language problems and also they had been a bit traumatized by war. But they were wonderful. There was a group of about 12 of them. And I did a lot of mime, you know, miming. Okay. Uh, to get them to start to express themselves. And then I'd put in words, replace the movement by the word, and then sort of use movement and bring in language, you know, slowly. And that, that really worked, actually. <laughs> yeah. That was really interesting, you know. And then other teachers said, you know, wow, there's quite an improvement, you know, with, you know, uh, Aldo, you know, he's doing fantastically. I said, yeah, yeah, you know, like, I'm glad, you know. And so it affected their work in other areas. So it was sort of, and then I did sort of animation because we didn't have any money. They didn't have any cameras. Yet. So I got a couple of these Instamatic, almost like Instamatic cameras. They're like small Super 8 cameras and uh, set them up. I built this special sort of animation setup, which could be the camera could be set up on a tripod. And because there was no actual space for the film studies as such, I had to be very uh, mobile. So it didn't matter what, where I was, which room they assigned to me, I was able to just set up the cameras and get it going within, within five minutes. And then uh, I just gave them a basic sort of understanding of what animation is. And I had a pegboard set up and everything with the camera pointing down and, and they could play around with cutout figures and all sorts of things. They had a ball. And this was a gr group of year eight, year eight and uh, year seven animation. And at the end of the year, we had a little, um, you know, sort of uh, festival. Okay. Uh, and uh, the school, they liked it because it was, like, different. 
you know, unusual. So in the end, I, I mean, I love teaching, but I just found the school, uh, I love the kids, but the school administrative shit got to me. I, I just couldn't stand it anymore. And I wanted to yeah. in, expand my knowledge of film. And so I, I left and I did a postgraduate one year at Swinburne Film and Television School. And after that, my film that I made that year went, the year after went to the uh, Melbourne International Film Festival. Uh, you know, it was shown there, which was pretty, pretty fantastic. You know, for the first time, the, a little film that it's just, it's just a short film that I made. It's called Traces. And that's actually in that. Anyway, uh, that went really well. And uh, it was shown at the Palais Cinema. <laughs> <gasps> massive audience, mm. you know, this little film. And for the first time, I realized the excitement of it, the excitement of being in a cinema with all these people around you, and they're going to watch this little film, you know. And uh, it was strange. It was like a really strange feeling. It was the first time I'd felt... I mean, I'd done theatre stuff because I was doing theatre and doing some plays, but it's not the same, like... It was uh, pretty amazing. So I really enjoyed that. And then I started working as a freelancer, basically doing um, assistant cinematography and uh, assistant editing, then editing for about three years. Then I, w I went for a job at Swinburne as a lecturer, and I got it. And so I was a senior tutor, but within three years I became lecturer. And I taught at Swinburne, which then became Victorian College of the Arts Film School. So I did that for 20 years. I did everything. <laughs> I ended up being the head uh, sort of uh, lecturer for the three-year course. And that was very, very exciting, really interesting. We were in competition, basically, with the film, television and radio school, but we, we were kicking out. Now that Anne is about to retire, what we're thinking is we're going to change the orchard into an arboretum. It's a place where you have different types of trees. They don't have to be fruit trees. You might have a few fruit trees. You know, I'll keep some of the fruit trees. But basically, it's a space where you walk in and there's trees everywhere. You make a path through the trees and, you know, and it's just a place to enjoy. And I felt like as a legacy to keep, to have something that you can give to the next generation. I don't know whether my son or my daughter is going to want to keep the place. I don't know what will happen. But I wanted to have a legacy. I wanted something to leave behind as much for my family and friends as for the community and the island. So in the end, the islanders would go, oh, did you know about this place? It's got an arboretum and it's wonderful. Thank you.